The resurrection of Jesus has implications. Makes a difference. You know, some things don't seem to make much of a difference. If crude oil drops $30 a barrel, we hardly even notice, right? And, and we wouldn't know if the tax changed, the tax code changed unless it was on the news. Most of us wouldn't figure it out. But sooner or later, the resurrection of Jesus has a profound effect on everyone. But that's the thing. Sooner or later, we can begin to realize its implications sooner rather than later. This week, I want to tell the story of what happened that first Easter. It's, you know, I'm finishing a third part of a, the story of the Passion Week and, and Easter Sunday. But next week, I want to tell us what it means. I want to look at what that means for us. Our text is John chapter 20. I'm going to read the first 11 verses, and then I will be preaching narratively this morning. I'll be telling the story. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciples, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. There are a lot of things in that text that are not immediately evident. We're going to be talking about it at Go Deep, uh, which is our Wednesday night time. We just gather over at Big B Coffee, and we think through the text and what it means for our lives. We also provide Go Deep sheets for people, whether you go to Big B Coffee or not. They'll be back on those two cafe tables in this room and by the cafe table leading out the door. So if you want to think through this further, maybe get together with some friend and talk about what the Scripture is saying, that's hugely helpful. Because I'm telling this narratively, I'm going to include some imaginative elements. So I just tell you that up front. Conversations, gestures, that kind of thing. I, I will be careful not to contradict the biblical evidence. And I think in some cases, um, we'll use the imaginative elements to bring out implications that are in the text. For example, I'll say that St. Peter raised his hand. But the text doesn't say that. However, in Acts chapter 12, in a similar situation where everybody's talking at once, in that passage, we see St. Peter raise his hand. And so I'm imaginatively thinking maybe he did the same thing here. One of the difficulties in telling the Easter story is that there's almost too much material. Each of the biblical evangelists gives us glimpses into the story from the perspectives of different people who lived it, eyewitnesses, people who were there. One tells what Mary Magdalene saw. Another describes what the women disciples, besides Mary, saw. Uh, some tell what Peter saw. Others what John saw. Another what Thomas didn't see. And yet another what the Roman soldiers saw. There are gaps in some of the stories. 
and there are overlapping chronologies in others. So trying to pull all of that into a cohesive narrative can be a challenge. Well, I, I'm not up to the challenge this morning. I'm not going to try to put it all together this morning. I have done that, but I don't think there's enough time for that today. Instead, I'm going to tell the story, for the most part, from the perspective of the disciple Mary. Now, there are so many Marys in the Easter story that we have to differentiate between them. The one that we're talking about today is distinguished routinely by the town from which she hails. She's Mary of Migdal, Mary of Magdala, or Mary Magdalene, or just for short, people called her the Magdalene. When Mary first met Jesus, her life was an absolute disaster. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, we all have our demons. Well, Mary had hers and enough for several other people besides. She was alone, she was afraid, she was confused. Her life was like a bad dream that never ended and she couldn't wake up. And no one else was able to wake her up. For the most part, no one even tried until Jesus. He woke her up. He gave Mary back her life. He drove away the demons and in their place he gave her something she had never known acceptance. And when he accepted her, so did his friends. For the first time in memory, she felt included, felt wanted. She was part of something, and it felt good. She didn't always act right. She knew it. But these people didn't push her away because she was weird or because she didn't have it all together. She owed her life to Jesus. He'd given her peace, hope, and friends. And he'd given her God. Taught her to know him as her father, who loved her, who cherished her. Taught her to trust him. Jesus had done more than just save her life, which was hardly worth saving. He'd given her a new one, a new life. And she owed everything to Jesus. So imagine how she felt when on that dark Friday, that unimaginable Friday, her savior, her friend, her teacher, her everything was killed. It was like they were killing her too. What would happen to her new life, her new friends, her new hopes without Jesus, without him to hold them together? Would her friends turn her away like everyone else had done? With Jesus, she had the prospect of living in God's kingdom. Without Jesus, she didn't have any prospects. She had no life. And I think she thought she soon might have no friends either. But for now, her new friends were still with her. In fact, she was staying with them in the city. She cried with them. She worried with them. She got angry and cursed the Romans with them. She went with them on Friday to the tomb to see where it was. The day that Jesus was killed, she went back with them on Sunday morning, that first Easter, to perform the burial ritual. Now, Mary was from Magdala in Galilee, which is on that northwest shore of Galilee. She didn't really know people from Jerusalem. But during Passover, she was staying in a house with some of her Jesus friends. As soon as it was light on that first morning, in fact, before the sun was up, they were supposed to meet up with some of their other friends who were staying in another house in Jerusalem 
at Jesus' tomb. See, in that society, it was the women's job to prepare a body for burial. And it had been done by two men. So they weren't quite sure it had been done properly, and they wanted to go take care of that. Before dawn, Mary and a few of the women she was staying with started for the tomb. They were almost on top of it, and in the dull light of that early morning, before they realized that the stone had been rolled away. Now, rolled away is not the right term. This fantastically heavy stone looked like it had been pried loose and tossed aside. The women just stared for a moment, wondering what could have happened. Why force the stone out of its track? These stones are put in a track and rolled down, and when necessary, pushed back up, and then some kind of a shim was put under it to hold it. No one who had the right to enter the tomb would have done that. And then Mary's quick mind came up with an answer. Grave robbers. Someone had taken his body. Her mind was quick. Her feet were even quicker. Before the others could stop her, she was running and yelling, I'm going to get Peter. If anyone would know what to do, it would be Peter. She ran all the way back to the city through its narrow, still quiet streets in the early morning. By the time she reached the steps that led to the upper room apartment where the apostles were hiding, she was breathing hard and had a terrible pain in her side. She walked up the steps, she pounded on the door, and when no one answered, she pounded louder. Still no answer. So she began calling, it's me, it's Mary. Something terrible's happened, open up. The door opened slowly, and she went in. There were the apostles, all of them on their feet. They looked haggard. They hadn't slept for days, and they also looked scared. Mary went straight to Peter, and she said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. Peter just looked at her as if trying to make up his mind, and then pushed by her, went down the stairs, and he started running. Young John Barzebedi ran after him, and the others just stood looking at each other. A few minutes later, Mary was on her way back to the tomb, back out of the city, but this time she walked. She felt weak, she was breathing hard, and as she walked, she thought about what had happened and tried to put together the pieces. The people who killed Jesus, when she thought of them, disgust welled up inside of her. They must have come back and taken his body from the tomb. It must be some final act of degradation, some last attack on his dignity to deny him a proper burial. In Jewish culture, that was enormously important. So, of course, they didn't want him to have it. When she finally got back to the garden tomb, there's no one there. Peter and John had already been there, and they'd already gone. Her friends who she left there, they're already gone. For good? She may have wondered. She stood outside the tomb, and she began to sob. Utterly desolate. For a few minutes, her grief didn't even permit her to think. She wasn't merely grieving. She was the embodiment of grief. After a while, her sobbing quieted, and she walked over to the tomb, and she bent low, and she looked in, and she saw what she took to be two men sitting, one on either end of the stone slab where Jesus' body had rested. They asked her why she was crying, and in a kind of fog, she answered, they've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they've put him. And then she turned around. When she did, she saw through her tears someone standing, a little ways off, and she thought he must be the groundskeeper, and he too asked her, why are you crying? 
She didn't answer, but her weeping said, because everything I had has been taken from me. I have nothing. I have no one. I must be the most pitiful person on earth. When she didn't answer in words, he asked, what are you looking for? The what could refer to a person or an object. How was she supposed to answer that? What was she looking for? In all the cosmos, there was only one thing worth looking for. She was looking for the one who gave her hope, who gave her love, the one who gave her herself. Even though he died, she was still looking for him. She felt like if she didn't find him, she would lose herself. So all of this is going on inside of her. But what she said was, sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you put him and I'll get him. You see this little woman saying, I'll go get him. I'll get his body. Her, her mind was stuck. It was like a needle on a record. And all she could think about was finding her master and saving him from some final degradation. That's all that mattered. The world around her was fading. And truthfully, she was fading too. She was falling back into the darkness before Jesus when she had her demons and her demons had her. It was the voice that saved her. You know, some people say they never forget a face. I'm not one of those people. My brain is not hardwired for video, but for audio. I remember voices. Probably 20, 20 years ago, let's see, yeah, when my dad died, we got a phone call at the house from a man I hadn't seen for 20 years before that, and immediately I knew him. I get voices. I think Mary might have been like that. Voices registered with her in a way that faces didn't. And in the gathering darkness of her soul, a voice reached her. The voice reached her. It was the same voice that had called her out of darkness once before. When she had been a lost sheep and she heard her shepherd's voice, he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. The voice called her by name. All it said was, Mary. And the voice that had in creation turned darkness into light did the same thing again. The darkness melted away, and through her tears, she saw him. She saw the one who had walked in a garden in the cool of the evening at creation, now walking in another garden in the cool of the morning, the first morning of the new creation. She said to him, Teacher, didn't even dawn on her to ask what had happened or how it was possible. She just knew he was there, and if he was alive, she would live too. She grabbed hold of him, but after a moment he said, Don't hold on to me. Go tell my brothers. She didn't argue. She went her third trip that day along that route. It wasn't even 8 o'clock in the morning yet. She didn't understand what had happened, but she knew everything would be all right. She wasn't afraid anymore. As long as Jesus was here, 
She would be fine. Everything would be fine. She went back to the upper room. Peter wasn't there. Hadn't come back. But she said to the rest of them, I've seen the Lord. And she told them what had happened. And you know what? They didn't believe her. Not one word of it. They thought she's never been a very stable person. She's distraught. She's hysterical. She needs to calm herself down. But then the other women, the other Mary and Salome and Joanna and others, came and they told them the same thing. He's alive. We've seen him. He told us to come and tell you. And guess what? The guys didn't believe them either. They said, you're delusional. You're seeing things. One of them probably said something like, they're women. They're emotional. They saw something they didn't understand, and they're blowing it all out of proportion. One of the guys said to John, what did you and Peter see? And John told him that Mary was right. The stone covered to the tomb had been forced, and Jesus' body wasn't there. Did you see any angels, like the women said? No. Did you see him? No, we certainly didn't see him. And one of the men said, there you have it. You women, you saw someone about Jesus' height, about his size, but it couldn't have been him. Couldn't have been. Look, you haven't slept for days. You've hardly eaten. Combine that with the shock and the grief and the uh, feminine emotionalism, and you have the explanation for what you saw. If things really change that much, women... Someone asked John where Peter was, and John said, I don't know. I asked him if we should go back, and he said, you go. He didn't tell me where he was going. The hours slowly ticked by. The women angry at the men. The men worried about the women. In the afternoon, Cleopas and his wife, one of those women who swore she'd seen Jesus, left. They had to go to Emmaus. That's about a seven-mile walk, and it was already getting late. It was clear that she didn't want to go, but he had made up his mind. Festival was over. He had to be back at work. If he wasn't, he'd be in big trouble. They had to go. The day was winding down when Peter finally returned. He knocked twice, and everyone froze, thinking the temple guard had found them. When he said, it's Simon, they all breathed again. The door was unbolted, and almost before he got inside, everyone started talking all at once. Peter, John, John said, Jesus' body is gone. Peter, Mary said she saw him. So did the other women. They said they saw angels, and then they said they saw him. They're delusional, someone snapped. And then Peter held up his hand and waited for them to get quiet. And then he said, it's true. I've seen him. And then the men believed it, or they wanted to, except for Thomas, who had barged out of the room and had not returned. Some of the women had brought food during the afternoon, bread and fish, lentils, wine, and now people were picking at the food as they talked and they argued and they wondered what it all meant. And and then suddenly everything changed. 
impossible to put into words. Some felt like the room suddenly grew brighter. Others felt like a fresh wind had blown in through the windows. Others thought they heard a song wafting through the open window. They were aware that something had changed before they were aware of what it was. And then they saw him, Jesus standing right in the middle of them, though the door was still bolted. At first, the disciples were so startled, they recoiled. They couldn't move or speak or even think. It was like they were under a spell. But Jesus just laughed and said, Shalom. Then he said, and I think he said in a Yiddish accent, what, you think I'm a ghost? And he laughed again, and he showed them his hands and his sides. It really was him. The marks were still there. He asked them with a sparkle in his eyes if they had something to eat, and they gave him a piece of fish, and he made a show of eating it. Mmm, that's good fish. And then he laughed again, and the spell was broken, and they all gathered round him. Some of them touched him, wanting to make sure he was real, that they weren't dreaming. He wasn't a vision, not a ghost. He was as real as ever. And almost more real, they felt, though they couldn't have said what they meant by that. They heard his voice. They felt his breath. They received his commission. And then he was gone. That was disconcerting. They wanted him to stay. They wanted things to be like they were before. But they realized that he didn't belong to them. They belonged to him. He was not at their beck and call. They were at his. When Thomas returned, everyone was talking at once. They told him Jesus really was alive. He came here. He stood right there. He talked to them. He ate a piece of fish. Thomas waved them all off with one sweep of the hand, looked at Peter, and said, well. And Peter nodded and said, it's true. By the way, just a short break in the story. We are never told what Peter saw that day. I think there are some things that are just between a person and God. And this was one of them. Thomas's reaction to all this was not what anyone would have expected. He got angry. He said something like, you're all crazy. You're crazy as those women. They tried to explain it to him again, tried to argue with him. He got even angrier. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will never believe it. Thomas was a stubborn ox, and he always had been, and everybody knew it. He was one of those guys who has to learn things for himself. He got the opportunity a week later. The person who owned the place was allowing them to stay on in the upper room. They weren't so afraid anymore, except for Thomas, who insisted on keeping the door bolted in case the temple guard came looking for them. It was Sunday evening. It had been a week since any of them had seen Jesus. They were uncertain about what to do. What should we be doing? But they were certain about Jesus, except for Thomas. When anyone would say something about Jesus, he would just put his right index finger to his left palm as if to say, when I see the marks, when I put my finger where those nails were. And then it happened again. 
It's as if the candles flared or a breeze blew through the room, and there he was standing right in front of Thomas. Shalom, he said, and his whole being radiated joy and laughter. Then he offered his palm to Thomas, pointing with his index finger and said, put your finger here. Put your hand right here. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. That's where preachers often end the story, but the story doesn't end there. They would see Jesus again and again over the next 40 days, always at the time and place of his choosing. They would sit with him and learn from him and begin to understand that what had happened was part of a bigger picture. It was part of the plan forever. God was undoing the ancient curse, bringing an end to the rule of death, and forming a people for himself around Jesus. Jesus told them the story's not over. In fact, you have a key role to play in it, to announce the good news of God and make disciples to me. He promised he would be with them in that effort, and God would support them in response to their prayers. And the disciples played their role with courage. Almost every one of them died because of it. They turned the world upside down with the good news of what God had done and was still doing through Jesus. Now, they died long ago, but the story didn't. Sometimes we get the idea that when the first disciples passed from the scene, when the Apostle Paul passed from the scene, the story paused for a commercial break. We feel like nothing important is going on now. After the break, then there'll be the wrap-up, and then Jesus will return, and there'll be the resurrection. But this is no commercial break. The same story is going on right now. We are a part of it. And it's still being chronicled. That's what Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 and 13 says. And the books were open, and the dead were judged according to what they had done in the books. Ours may not be the acts of the apostles. Ours may be the acts of the Michigan Christians. But that's a great part of the story, too. And it will declare the glory of God. Let me close with this. I took the title of this sermon, Who Are You Looking For? from Jesus' question to Mary in the garden. But there's another question, at least as important, that we should ask. And that is, who is looking for you? You remember how in the garden, at the very beginning, after the first man and woman rebelled, they hid from God, and what did he do? He went looking for them. Remember how Jesus went and looked for the apostle Philip? The the dull point of all the apostles. And Jesus went out personally to find him and call him. How he went looking for the man who had been born blind until he found him. Remember how in Jesus' poignant stories in Luke 15, the shepherd went looking for the lost sheep. The woman went looking for the lost coin. The father went looking for his lost son. See, the truth is, as Augustine put it, we couldn't look for God had he not already found us. Is God looking for you? When God looks for people, he calls them. He called to Adam in the garden. 
And later, in another garden, he called to Mary. And he still calls. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And he calls them by name. The scripture gives examples. If, if you noticed, Genesis 22, Abraham, Abraham. In Exodus 3, Moses, Moses. Later, it was Samuel, Samuel. Martha, Martha. Simon, Simon. Saul, Saul. When he called all of those people, and some of those people are the greatest ones in the history of the Bible. For some reason, he repeated their names. Maybe he had to. But Mary heard him the first time. And I want to be like her. God still calls people by name. If you have heard the voice speaking to you, answer. Whatever you do, do not harden your hearts. That is the great risk that human beings run. You know how we do that? We don't say to God, no. We say, okay, God. Later. The one sure symptom of a hard heart is poor hearing. Hardening your heart plugs your ears. That's why the psalmist said, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. If the one who called Adam in the garden, who called Mary in the garden, is calling you, maybe not twice, but a hundred times, answer. Say, here I am. All right, let's bow our heads. And maybe you know God has been calling to you, been speaking to you, and you've been getting busy and trying to avoid it. I'm going to give you a moment just to say yes to God. Here I am. If you've never started a life with him, if you've been on the run from him, now's the time to turn around. To trust in his son Jesus and become one of his people. God, we come to you in the name of the one who came to us and went through death and Hades itself to find us. Call out a people for yourself from among us and make us yours forever in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen.